general terms, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, hoping that someday he'll come. But his disciples are saying, and that's the guy. (laughs) He's here. He's arrived. The disciples are praising God for Jesus, who is the king. They're now attributing this lordship to Jesus of Nazareth. They're saying he is the son of David. They're saying that he is God's anointed. This is the gospel in its its physical being. The long-awaited promise is now being fulfilled. A song like this had never been sung on the roadway up to Jerusalem in this context. And so Jesus, just by his presence, is going to cause conflict because while there's a whole multitude of people who are shouting this and singing this and affirming this, there's a whole other group of people that are saying, have you lost your minds? This is blasphemy. Look at it, verse 40. In verse 40, it says this, and some of the Pharisees, sorry, if you go back for just a second, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Teacher, your disciples have gotten this wrong. You are not the Messiah. You are not the King. You are not the Lord. We're not going to bow a knee to you. We refuse to accept you as the messenger, the one who is going to usher in salvation, not only for Israel, but through Israel, all of mankind. Wherever Jesus goes, there's a conflict. I spent some time this week looking at uh, the history of the hymn Amazing Grace in the United States of America. Not, not the actual history of the hymn. John Newton wrote the hymn. He was an ex-slave trader who came to Christ uh, and, and writes about his conversion experience in Amazing Grace. But what struck me about what I studied was as long as you keep God universal, as long as it, it's kind of on an impersonal level and, and at a bit of a, a safe distance, then everybody's okay. I looked at the number of folks who, and, and I'm sure this is a, a very much an abbreviated list, but I've looked at a, at a list of folks who have sung Amazing Grace or used Amazing Grace in some way. Did you know that the Library of Congress has in it over 3,000 versions of the song Amazing Grace are actually registered in the Library of Congress? Joan Baez, who if you're under 40 years old, you just went who? So um, folk singer from, the, from, from people my age is our era. Joan Bias, who was extraordinarily popular in the 60s and in the early 70s, asked one time, what's the most requested song you have at any of your concerts? And she said, hands down, it's Amazing Grace. Do you know, and some of you are at Woodstock, but if you're at Woodstock, there's a good chance you don't remember being at Woodstock. (laughs) But the facts are, Arlo Guthrie, when he was on the stage at Woodstock, sang Amazing Grace. Some of the other artists who have recorded the song over the years, Aretha Franklin, Johnny Cash, Rod Stewart, The Birds, Elvis, Sam Cooke, Skeeter Davis, Willie Nelson, and more recently in the early 2000s, a punk band named Entombed, who entitled their CD, Satan's Sons Worshiping God. And the last song on that CD is Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace has showed up on The Simpsons, Movies Alice's Restaurant, Coal miner's daughter, Silkwood, I, I, maybe somebody knows this, I would be shocked, I, was, I couldn't believe this. It actually was in Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan. Now, is there anybody here that really knew that? Any, there's a, we got one, one or two Trekkies in the, in the congregation. The Western uh, movie Maverick that had uh, Mel Gibson in it. One author put it this way, Amazing Grace has become the spiritual national anthem of the United States. Now, 
it's wonderful that the Library of Congress has 3,000 versions. It's wonderful that all these people sing it. But if you look at the context of those, it's being held at a distance. The moment you introduce the name Jesus into that particular song or that context of that song, then you get an immediate split. You have people that say amen, and you have people that say God forbid. You have both of those because Jesus creates conflict. The question is not, will there be conflict? The question is, how does Jesus react? And then the question is then, for you and for me this morning, if we're his disciples, how do we react to both sides of this conversation? Well, what Jesus does first is he affirms his identity. Look at again at verse 40. The Pharisees say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what we need to see, again, go to the next slide if you would for me, please. As he answered them, They say, rebuke his disciples, and he says, I tell you this, if these were silent, even the very stones would cry out. In other words, Jesus doesn't say to the folks that are criticizing him, to the folks that are saying, you're not the son of God, you know what, you're right, I'll tell these guys to be quiet, we just got a little carried away. You know, we we got a little excited in the moment, and we're, you know, singing Psalm 118, we, we should have known better, and we'll quiet down. Jesus doesn't respond that way. Jesus says, guys, I don't have any control over this. You don't understand. If these human beings are quiet, creation itself will sing the praise of God in reference to me. In other words, Jesus affirms his identity as he refuses the request of the Pharisees. In doing so, he says, no, the the, the truth is these folks have it right. I am who was predicted to come in Psalm 118. That is my identity. And I want to expand that just a bit by giving you a couple of other points. If you look at the Gospels carefully, if you're, if you're checking out the Christian faith, if you aren't quite sure what you believe or what you don't believe, or if you just want a bit of a refresher course on Jesus, let me encourage you this week, maybe along with our, our worship guide, to read through the Gospels again. Or maybe read through the Gospels for the first time. The names of those books, if you, if you don't know them, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're pretty, they're pretty easy to find. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. But if you read the Gospels, if you read those four books, you see these three points that I mentioned here. The first is that Jesus accepts worship that is due only God. There are always people that are coming up to him and bowing down to him. Even, even the demonic forces of this world, when they see him, they scream at him, Jesus, son of the most high God, what do you want with us? Wherever Jesus goes, when he performs miracles, when he teaches, somebody says, you're the son of God, and he never denies that. And when people bow down to worship him, he accepts their worship. Now, in our day and age, we see people do kind of crazy worship things all the time. It isn't all that it's a little odd to us, but it isn't like off the charts odd that you'd see somebody worshiping somebody else. You go, well, you know, that's, that's a bit odd. But, but it, it doesn't strike us all that deeply. In Jesus' day, for a person to receive worship that is due only God and, and to accept it falsely was punishable by death. And that's what literally ended up being what the cross was about in the minds of the Pharisees, that Jesus had committed blasphemy, that he had made claims that only God can make. But nowhere in the Gospels will you find Jesus refusing to accept worship. Nor does he ever repudiate anyone's claims when they talk about his deity. Jesus was having a conversation with his disciples in Luke chapter 9. He said, who do people say that I am? And they answered, oh, oh, man, Jesus, all kinds of answers. Some say that you're Elijah, come back from the dead. Others say you're one of the prophets. It's kind of all over the map. And he looks at his disciples and says, well, who do you guys say that I am? 
And Peter says, you're, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're, you're, the, you're the son of God. And Jesus affirms that. He says, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. The, the Spirit of God revealed that to you. He doesn't say, Peter, don't say that. Peter, that, that's off. Don't, didn't, Peter, never say that again. He says, Peter, you know what? You got it right. And praise God, you got it right. There's no false sense of, of humility. There's no kind of aw shucks when Jesus is praised for being God. And in fact, in John chapter 8, he states it plainly. He's in an argument with some of these guys, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he takes the very name of God for himself. So the first reaction Jesus has to the conflict is not to back down. If you're here this morning, you're hoping to keep Jesus in a nice, neat, little, clean box where you call the shots and he doesn't, he's not going to have anything to do with that. He has no interest in that sort of conversation with you or with me or with anybody else because he is who he says he is. He was God in the flesh, and he is today the risen King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the only way to deal with Jesus is on his terms. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, sorry, guys, can't do it. If they're quiet, even the rocks will cry out. But while Jesus is firm in his commitment to the truth of his identity, he is also emotionally engaged with the people around him, and he is heartbroken over their unbelief. Look at verses 41. In 42, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. If you put that literally in the English, we would say he burst into tears. That's literally the, the, the translation out of the Greek. That, that's how we would put it if we were going to just say it in our modern vernacular. But it, it's easier to say he, he wept. But it's not like he gets, got a little misty-eyed. I get a little misty-eyed every once in a while. I can't promise you I might not tear up a little bit this morning. But I, I don't think I've ever just could, had to stop a sermon for 10 minutes because I was bawling. Jesus was bawling. Why? So he looked at the city and he saw its unbelief. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that what? That make for peace. But now they're hidden for your, from your eyes. He goes on to talk about uh, what's going to happen to them, and, and we'll come to that in just a minute. But Jesus is extraordinarily dismayed over the rejection of God's plan for peace. You see, biblical peace, by definition, is not an absence of conflict. It's not that just, you know, nobody's yelling at anybody and, and it's peaceful now. You know, we're, we may not like each other, but we're kind of holding down our emotions, and so it's, it's kind of peaceful around here. That's not what peace means in Scripture. Peace in the Bible and peace here, when Jesus says, knowing what would bring you peace, means what would make you right with God. Biblical peace always starts vertically. I've said that a number of times in my preaching ministry at Green Tree. Peace in Scripture always starts between you and God. That's always the first question you have to ask yourself. You don't ever have to wonder about that. The first question I have to ask myself is not, how's my peace with my wife Cindy or my kids? The first question I have to ask myself is, do I have peace with God? And if I do, how is that accomplished? Leon Morris, author of Our Day, wrote it this way, that everything is right between creator and creature. I like that. It's a, it's a simple statement. When Jesus sees the rejection when Jesus sees the hostility, he doesn't become angry. That's not the emotion that's listed there. He doesn't become righteously indignant. That's not the emotion that's listed there. He doesn't become indifferent to the suffering. The people who don't say, well, you know what? I'm going to wash my hands of you guys. Now you're on your own. Forget it. He expresses his love for a lost and rebellion man, rebellious mankind by Jesus weeping. 
again. First time was a few days earlier with Lazarus, and now he looks at the totality of unbelief in his generation and his day, and he knows why he's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to complete the final battle between his kingdom and the kingdom of death and sin and hell. And he sees the unbelief and he weeps. And the question isn't, should have Jesus wept? The, 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 that Jesus reacted perfectly to the situation. The question is, what is your reaction? What is my reaction when we see hostility towards the gospel? When we see people who react and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Do we get defensive? Do we get argumentative? Do we get judgmental? Do we get self-righteousness? Or does it cause us some emotional pain and suffering because we realize what's being rejected is the only hope of life, which leads me to my fourth observation about this passage is that Jesus mournfully warns even his enemies of the outcome of their actions. In verses 42 through 44, said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would bring, make for peace. Now they're hidden from your eyes. And then look what he says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus loved his detractors enough to be honest with them. If you look at that passage carefully or listen to that passage carefully, in three short verses, either you or your second person, you did not recognize what was happening in your town 14 times. In three verses, Jesus uses you or your. He loves them enough to tell them this pathway you're on is a pathway that will lead to irreversible devastation. And he loved them too much to not tell them the truth. Jesus could have said, well, good luck with that, and gone on his way. But love compelled him to let them know the outcome of their unbelief. When uh, one of my children was, was getting ready to graduate from high school, there's a senior camp out that was going to be taking place a couple of weeks before graduation. And uh, I'm not naive. I know our children did things that maybe even now I still don't know about. Uh, in fact, Katie told me something about Jordan over, over spring break, and Jordan emailed Katie something about ratting them out. But um, <laughs> I'm not naive that, that our children did things we don't know, but occasionally our kids would actually be honest with us. And on this occasion, uh, this uh, camp I was getting ready to happen, and, and one of the boys, so you know, when Katie came to me and said, you know, I want to go on this camp out, but you, you know, you kind of know what, what's going to, you know, not going to be any adults, and you kind of know what's going on. Are you going to tell me I can't go? That was the, that was the question. I said, no, I'm not going to tell you you can't go. I said, I, I've told you all your life how to make the right decisions. You, you know what it means to, to be a disciple of Jesus. And in about three months from now, the entire rest of your life, you could go on that kind of camp out every night of your life if you wanted to. So if you haven't learned it by now, I, I don't know that just making you stay home is going to work. But I'll tell you this, one bad decision can destroy your life forever. So think about that when you go on the camp out, and all three of our children's bodies and souls are still intact. But I loved him enough to say to him, I can't live your life for you. I can't force you into doing what I want you to do or think you should do all of your life. You're a young man now, but I will tell you that if you are not wise, your life could be destroyed. And what Jesus is saying to Jerusalem is, I can't force you 
to believe in me. It's hidden from your eyes. You know why it's hidden from your eyes? Everybody looks at it and goes, gosh, God's being kind of mean. They're hiding it from their eyes. No, it's because everybody went like this. I don't want to see, right? Like it's going to go away. They've closed their eyes intentionally. They've said, we reject you. We reject your lordship. And Jesus says, you're now to the point where even though I'm still telling you, even though I'm still reaching out to you, even though I'm weeping over you, you've put yourself in a place where you can't see. And that's a terrible, terrible place to be. Even as Jesus weeps, he warns them that rejecting God's grace is going to lead to their destruction. And if you, if you are a student of history, perhaps you know that about 40 years after Jesus made this pronouncement, Jerusalem was absolutely leveled by the Romans. A small band of, of Jewish rebels had really caused a lot of trouble for several years, and the Romans, being the Romans, had finally had enough. And when they kind of swatted Israel, they had the power to swat Israel. It was like using a bazooka on a fly. There was nothing left. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. But more to our point this morning, our dismissal of mercy has the same consequences. It doesn't mean that Kirkwood's going to be destroyed or St. Louis is going to be destroyed, but we're talking about our eternal well-being or our eternal punishment. Because you see, Jesus loves us enough not just to warn us, he loves us enough to save us. That was the whole point of him coming to Jerusalem was so that he could go to the cross and offer you and me the forgiveness that we need so that God's wrath will be appeased. God's wrath is righteous. It is holy. It is perfect. God is not being uh, angry for no purpose. God is not being, being rashful in his anger. His anger against sin is perfect because he knows that it destroys our relationship with him. And then we turn around and use our sin to destroy one another. What loving father would allow that to go on? And I hear people say sometimes, why would God send me to hell? And my answer is, why would you choose to go there if he offers you salvation? You see, that's what Jesus does. He doesn't change his terms of peace because we want a different message. He doesn't say, oh, now that I know what you want to hear, I'll make it all about you. Jesus comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So he says to the Pharisees, if these guys are quiet, even the rocks are going to crowd. He says to you and me this morning, there is a pathway to peace. The time of your visitation is today. I'm here among you through my word, through the Spirit. Why would you reject my gracious offer of love and compassion. Even as Jesus mourns, he does so by warning us of the outcome. So how do you apply this passage of Scripture this morning? I'm going to give you three applications as we begin to wrap up. The first one is this. If you're here this morning and nobody's ever told you that you could experience forgiveness through Christ, I'm delighted to be somebody who can tell you that. I was about to say I'm delighted to be the first one, but I'm not. You should have heard it by now if you've been around Green Tree for a little while. But if you haven't, or maybe this is your first time, God loves sinners just like me. And if you ask anybody who's been around Green Church for a while, they'll tell you their pastor's a pretty good sinner. This is where I tear up a little bit. Because when we sing, you know, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound is, saved a wretch like me, all I have to do is look in the mirror and go, yep, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty miraculous. And yet I know that I'm a an object of God's love, that I've been adopted into his family as his son, not because I'm a pastor, not because I kind of do good work with people, but because God's grace can find even somebody like me. And it's as simple as believing that that's true for you. 
If you don't understand that, find me after the service. I'm going to be standing around there. I'll be happy to share more with you about that. But maybe your application this morning is to embrace, embrace the love of God that's given to you in Jesus because God's love is through Christ and no other way. But to the Green Tree family, I have a couple of questions that I think are appropriate for us to consider this morning. The first one is this, is are we willing to step into the conflict? Knowing that you could say to somebody, man, I really love Jesus, and they might grab you and hug you and say, that's wonderful, me too. Or they might fold their arms and, and give you a really dirty look and, and wonder how you could be so incredibly stupid. One of the things I loved about Joan and Jenny's story was they just found people and said, you got to get the Bible study. <laughs> just, just come. But did you hear the emotion in their voice? Did you hear the love in their voice? They, they weren't weeping there because it was kind of a happy time of remembering all the things that God had done and the people that had actually come to Christ through that Bible study. But there's an emotion attached to it. There's a love that was deep and abiding there. They didn't back away from the conflict. They gladly stepped into it. Will you and I do the same? What human soul is not worth fighting for? What person does not deserve to hear the grace and the mercy of God? How could I possibly back off just because they might get mad at me? That's making it all about me. That's selfish and self-centered. And from our beginning, Green Tree has been about the other guy. It's been about other people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we want to put our roots down deeply at Green Tree. Not so we can have a building, so we have to set up stuff on Sunday morning. It's got nothing to do with it. It's so we can have a springboard into our community, and our community can come and find a place where the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Will we step into the conflict? And my second question is simply this. Will we do so with emotion? Come back to what I said at the beginning. Our engagement with those who don't know Jesus will only go so far as our emotions allow. Will we do so with emotion, with a passion and a love that resembles that of our Lord Jesus. When uh, I am going to tell a story about Katie. When Katie was real little, probably three years old, I didn't travel very much because I've always worked at a local church. But every once in a while, we were in youth ministry. We'd take the kids to camp or something, and we'd be gone for a few days. And, and I remember one particular occasion, we were getting ready to leave for camp, and I was going to be gone for a few days, and I wasn't going to see her. And, and Katie is just she's like her daddy. She can be really, really emotional. So when you're three years old and dad's going to be gone, you know, for, for a few days, it feels like, you know, the world has come to an end. And so Katie's like, dad, please don't go. Please don't leave me. She, you know, just, just, and then finally, you know, I'm like, Katie, I got to go. I scoop her up and I hug her. I set her back down. I turn to walk out and now she's, you know, holding onto my ankle and I'm dragging her across the, you know, the floor. I'm like, well, at least I get the floor cleaned as I go out the door. But, you know, she's, Dad, please, please don't leave me. Please don't go. And I think about that image. And I think about somebody who doesn't know Jesus and how desperately they need to know, even if it means me clinging to their ankle and begging them with all the emotion in my heart to please don't go that direction. Please go this way. May God make us a body of believers that has that kind of emotion for those who don't know him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the, the waving of the palms, the coming of the king into Jerusalem. Father, we thank you that Jesus' disciples crowd, cried out with loud voices. Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Father, we thank you that we have this picture of the Messiah coming to his people, and yet we know what happens a few days later. We know that it leads to the cross. But Father, I thank you just for this moment that we can pause and we can reflect 
on that moment where Jesus burst into tears. He loved even his enemies that much that he wept over them. Father, whatever we do at Green Tree, whatever buildings we build or don't build, whatever, wherever we are, not just collectively on Sunday mornings, but as we scatter into this community as disciples of Jesus, may we do so with his emotions. We pray in his name. Amen. Stand with us.